0: You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. It's hard in a culture like ours to talk about the the complicated nature of gender categories and what they do. And the boxes they create sometimes. And if you haven't been here for this series, what we're not doing is negating one, ver- you know, one kind of man versus another kind of man in a sense, right? Like we're, we're trying to just say that we have a God who is capable of creating humankind in both male and female image. And if God can hold the essence of all of it, there's quite a real, and I think scientific, possibility that the humans that bear that God's image have some of that as well. And it's been really an interesting week or two for me um, as I think of patriarchy in the way of Jesus. And, and really, we're talking about more than patriarchy here. And that'll come up. Uh, we're talking about racism. We're talking about inequalities of various sorts. But what I find is that when a, a, a big topic is coming up, um, I start to experience things. And they're, sometimes they're intense and sometimes they're just subtle. Uh, and, and particularly when we start talking about, yeah, I know it's going to get a little crazy today, by the way, we're talking about the devil. So, <laughs> kind of. Um, and, and so like, like when we talk about spiritual things particularly, there's something that happens sometimes, Uh, a couple of weeks sometimes leading up a day. You know, it can be like the day before, calamity just hits my life and I have to go for it anyway. Um, It can be two weeks, and that's kind of been this, just kind of two weeks of sensing nothing terrible, but just kind of having this awareness, uh, noticing, for instance, more doubts about my faith this last week and kind of just assessing that. Um, You know, and just kind of holding it and, and not judging it and not saying, oh, I'm whatever these thoughts are, but simply just being honest and owning the fact, hey, something's happening here. Something's happening here. And what's been a blessing, to be honest, is it hasn't been as intense as it could have been. And it hasn't been as intense as it's been other times when I've kind of stepped into these spaces. So, so I, I take that as a blessing from the Lord who sees um, that we have a newborn at home and are really tired. And we only have, you know, I only got a little bit of a lid. So maybe, maybe God's been extra extra at work these last two weeks to, to resist some of that with me. But what I also know is true is that when we step into these conversations as Christians in the 21st century in a liberal place like Seattle, we, we come with all kinds of diversity to the subject. Some of us are, are curious about, do, do demonic forces, is there a devil, is there, you know, like some of that feels a little far-fetched, especially when they've got pitchforks. And then, and then some of us have really would say, you know, I've experienced, experience things that are dark and oppressive that don't fit the categories of, I need to go to a therapist for this. You you feel me? And there's a lot of things that fit the category that we need to go to therapist for. Let me call that out. Yeah. But once in a blue moon, in a Western setting, there's this little sliver of possibility. By the way, in, in other continents, this is normative, we're weirdos in the West. Okay. We are the weirdos. That this is even a question makes us weird as Westerners, not the other way around. And so so we can't even comprehend, and, and yet we come to church every Sunday and we say, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God, and, and we have to have that clarity and that authority. Well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of Christians, like, that's their posture. But to, oh, man, forbid that there's devils and demons and spiritual forces that are at work, or angels, like like, that that's ridiculous and yet we come from a tradition that holds all of it that there is a realm of reality that is unseen that affects this realm and so we step into this space this morning and i'm going to bible vomit on you for the first half of this message i mean it's going to be rough I'm not lying this morning. I was asked to come and bring this talk, and I'm calling it the patriarchy and the idol of isms. Because what we've been talking about, there is a reason I found out that we often around here say the patriarchy, not just the word patriarchy. It's an attempt to really capture this idea that there is a spirituality, that there are spiritual forces at work in isms. There are spiritual forces at work that need to be named. And whether or not there's some like actual one demon, hi, I'm called the patriarchy, I don't know. But what I do know is that based on the biblical worldview, there are forces beyond us that love to fuel our systems that hurt people. That, that, that for me is kind of foundational as we step into this stuff, okay? And it's going to get a little weird. I ain't, I ain't going to lie about that. But hopefully what we can do then is, is build this sort of like bridge from the Bible. Like what are they even talking about? How in the world is, is this spirituality even connected to something like that? patriarchy, racism, sexism, classism, any other ism that's negative. I suppose there's some other ones that are positive. I almost like forgot there's positive isms as long as we hold them in the right way. Um, but, but there are a lot of negative isms. And so I'm not trying to say that, for instance, I don't think feminism is inherently bad or an idol, right? So like there are isms that can be good. And, and so as we step into this, I want us to to kind of hold that, and we're gonna go from Bible to what have we talked about these last four weeks? And we're also gonna highlight the fact that there's actually a week five to this, and it's a video that um, that Jen actually brought to the staff team that I think is gonna be really important, and it's from Christina Cleveland, who's a, a writer and a thinker about a lot of issues of both patriarchy and race and intersectionality, and, and the way of Jesus, and she's going to say, what does it look like, especially our congregation leans a little um, to the white direction, I think, as far as numbers go, a little, and so naming that as a reality, and yet I know that the folks who call this place home are like, we want to be the kind of people that look like the radical way of Jesus who says that when my sister or brother of another um, race, culture, ethnicity, and when my sister or brother of another level of privilege is suffering, I suffer. That's what I believe we desire, and yet it is so hard to discern when we've been swimming in the sea of male privilege, white privilege, and any other kind of privilege we may have. And so let's step into it. it I know, I just, that, you're all like, whoa, that preface. And then it's not even gonna be that exciting, but let's see, we'll try. So so I'm gonna be rushing here for a little bit, but this is a quote that I think just sort of gives us a historical grid for talking about gender. Now, gender is one of these words people differentiate often from sex, you know, biology and gender, culture. Sometimes I don't want to get into that except to notice a dynamic that gender brings to cultures as far back as the Roman Empire that we're going to be dealing with a little bit today and into the present. And you can trace this all over the place. This is from Joan Scott. And um, she says this. Gender is... Gender is a uh, constitutive element of social relationships based on perceived differences between the sexes and gender is a primary way of signifying relationships of power. It might be better to say gender is a primary field within which or by means of which power is articulated gender is not the only field, but it seems to have been a persistent and recurrent way of enabling the signification of power in the West, in Judeo-Christian, as well as Islamic traditions. For concepts of power, though they may build on gender, are not always literally about gender itself. We're up here, this is grad school, so let's let's bring it back down let's bring it back down for just a quick second. What she's kind of saying I think, and I'm just going to give you kind of saying I think because she's not here to speak for herself, so I can't really do that is my sense is is it she in her study, which um I agree with in some ways what I've been exposed to I'm sure I have some things I'm like but This definition is so helpful in showing us that power is at the root of patriarchy in so many ways. Power is what creates, hey, soft, firm in the Roman Empire. Men are firm, women are soft. Men have skills then that can do things in the world and women have soft skills to take care of the home, right? And, and this gets translated culturally over and over again. And it's, by the way, another caveat, we're not saying if you wanna be a homemaker and that's what God is calling you to be and that's the season of life you're in, we're not saying you can't also be a feminist or be someone who follows Jesus fully. We're simply saying that when you've been put into a box and this is who you must be, The gospel of Jesus says that's ridiculous. Do you not know? Do you not know? But cultures love stereotypes. And so when there's an enemy of Rome, what does Rome do? They feminize them. They make art about them. They make cartoons about them. They make um, stories about them. And they're always feminine, right? And they were conquered. When the, the Jewish people in 70 CE, experience the massacre of Jerusalem and the temple falls down, what do they do? Well, Romans make coins. We've talked about this before. And what do they do with those coins? Well, they put a woman who is often called a Jewess, right, to make sure you know who she is, and a Roman soldier there with a very long stick that looks like a sword but could also be interpreted in other ways, simply saying, we conquered them and we did it brutally. You follow? You follow? I don't know how many children are in the room, so we're not going to go beyond that innuendo. And so we're, we're stepping into something where gender categories at the meta level have done this, but also at the micro level continue to do this in our culture. For some of us, it's hard to see. And one of the parts of this series that I was so like, honored and thrilled about was the chance to learn to see better patriarchy, father rule. By the way, in Latin, Roman, the official Roman language of the time, patria is the word. And guess how we translate patria? Fatherland, not homeland. It is fatherland. Back to the why, father rule. You follow? And so Jesus steps into this. Paul steps into this. They all step into this. But it has, we have some backstory to do. Because we're gonna be talking about the spirituality that has informed this, and we start in the book of Deuteronomy, and we are going to be really fast, but it might be interesting, and you might say, just get to the practical. We will see. Here we go. Deuteronomy 32, eight says this. You'll see two translations. One is Common English Bible, one of the Bibles we preach from. And then this is a translation of something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Bible that most folks in the Roman Empire who lived outside of Jerusalem would have read. It is the Bible that um, the apostles often quote from in the New Testament, um, and it is in Greek. So there's all these layers, right? And why is it in Greek? Well, because patriarchy empire came and conquered, right? Like, so, so again, there's so many layers, but it's just gonna show us something. So in our Bible, it says, when God most high divided up the nations, he divided up humankind. He decided the people's boundaries based on the number of the gods. Now, I show you this other version here, and and just notice the nuance. There's a couple of nuances here, but the most important one is it says number of the angels of God. So you have number of the gods, you have the number of the angels of God. Other translations will say sons of God, and then if you're the poor NIV and you got it wrong, you say sons of Israel, and you're just like, come on, you know. Um, and, 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 And what we have here is, is similar to the kinds of things that you see in those that weird story of the Nephilim in Genesis and you may remember they are called the sons of God and they, they have relations and there's giants I mean it's a very epic story the sons of God language that's angelic language that's really important for the Jewish imagination as we kind of move towards understanding the structures because what you see here is that God is Depicted here as saying every boundary, every nation of humanity will have overseen angelic figures who were, were able to basically hold evil back a little bit. They have the principles of the law, the Torah at that time, and their role is to try and just mitigate the best they can the Torah to the nations who don't have the Torah. You follow? The first five books of Moses. How do we live? How do we love? How do we, right? And, and so we see the, the number is often 70 nations. By the way, Septuagint, a translation for the nations, is also call, is also the word "70, because they have this vision of the nations being 70 or 72, depending on you know translation. And there's 70 elders who go and write that translation together. It's a very fascinating number. So, it continues on. So, in Genesis 10 and 11, Noah says there's 70 descendants, 70 nations. Now, we're going to keep going because we've got to track this thread. And by the way, uh, I was telling the staff even yesterday a little bit, I wrote like two or three chapters of my thesis on this content, and it was painful taking out what I did, and I still didn't take out enough, okay? So, so, any of you people who are into that, you know, just hit me up. I'll give you a couple chapters. You can't have all of it because I might do a doc, anyway. Okay, so Cyrac, so, so, which is not in our canon, um, sometimes called Ecclesiasticus, is uh, an Apocrypha book. Um, some traditions in the high church still read these. And, and for us, we, we don't read them, although interesting, as Anabaptists, people who um, come out of this radical Reformation movement, Menno Simons had no problem quoting the Apocrypha and he does so liberally, just FYI, very fascinating. Now, as a scholar, right, we're all Bible scholars this morning, so as scholars, we read these texts just so that we can understand the way the worldview of the first century Jewish person works. Does that make sense? Not necessarily for theology, but what is their understanding of reality? Some of these get at that, and this is another one. So Syrac 1717 says, he, God, appointed a ruler, and by the way, when you hear ruler, angelic ruler, and I could talk about that more, I can't right now, but an angelic ruler for every nation. But Israel is the Lord's own portion. And so what you're going to see throughout the storyline is there are angels that are sent out into the world to delegate God's role of ruling creation. God is a communitarian at the beginning. God is not only communitarian because of the Trinity, God is communitarian because he has a council that he deals with, sometimes called the council of the gods, the council of angels, all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And they help God, through delegation, run the world. But what we find is that in the process, what God wants them to do, they do not do. And very quickly, they start to really like being called gods. Like, really gods. They like to really get involved in the systems of of oppression, and they like to really kind of fuel these things. And we start to already notice that in Daniel. Daniel's a book towards the back of the Bible, the the Hebrew Bible at least. And it's probably one of, if not the newest Hebrew scripture books as far as historically when we think it was written down. The story, not so much, but when it was written down. So during the exile, this story emerges. And I just wanna read a few words here. It says, do not fear. This is an angel. Do not fear, Daniel, For from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I've come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia and have come to help you understand what is to happen to your people. I'm gonna just pause there. This language is being used for angelic princes. This is not language for literal princes. This angel is not fighting with some random boy prince, right? This angel is using the language that becomes very consistent in the Hebrew imagination, that for the nations there were appointed the sons of God, the angels, etc., who we know some of them have fallen. And why do we know that? Well, we already see cosmic conflict by Daniel happening, but it gets more intense and now we can transition to the New Testament. One scholar who I've quoted, I've quoted this one other time if you've been around here for a season, um, Lloyd Gaston, one of the biblical scholars who's helped me understand some of this. He once said, There is a tradition which identifies Gentile deities with the angels of God, the 70 angels of the nations. And there there is at least a strong possibility that their function was to administer the law of God in realms beyond the covenant with Israel. Whether the administrators are called elements or powers or angels They've administered a law from which Gentiles have been redeemed in Christ according to Paul's gospel. So we have these words and we're gonna look at them for a moment. Rulers, authorities, powers, principalities, these sort of grand, huge words. And we often do, and I think rightly, talk about them as demonic words forces, different names, and we're going to look at that, but in the ancient world, what comes to be of these terms is is this is those corrupted beings that once had a good job to do, that once were on God's side, but at least by the first century and much sooner, and we could go through all kinds of passages from the second temple period, blah, 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 but we're not going to. Oppression was a normative human experience and the Jews understood it through this grid. You follow? And God didn't want it that way, but that's how it has gone. And so we, we sometimes call these national angels and so they become proud. As I said, I'm just gonna put a, a quick blurb on the screen, receive worship as foreign gods and fuel oppressive systems and regimes. And so the apostle Paul steps into a world where his gospel is trying to navigate not just how are you gonna get to heaven when you die because that's not his primary question, although it is a question to ask. He's asking, how are you as a non-Jewish person gonna step into this space when you have perceived privileges that I don't have as a Jewish man, but also when you have a worldview that is so saturated in practices that are for these other angelic entities, these gods, these um, oppressive systems that are so bent in that direction that Jesus gently calls you out of it and invites you into an alternative reality where you say, the Jew is my brother, the Jew is my sister, the Greek is my brother. The, air quote, barbarian is my brother. And Paul fights for this. And he knows it's not going to be easy. So in Ephesians, the writer says this, and it's a very profound and important passage. In six, uh, Ephesians 6, chapter or 6, 12, going forward from there. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day. And after you've done everything possible to stand, so stand with the belt of truth around your waist. Justice as your breastplate and put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Every metaphor, every single metaphor in that passage has a Hebrew Bible equivalent that it's echoing. And I don't have time to go through every one of those, but you will hear things like God wearing this breastplate, God wearing the helmet. And, and, and the idea of the passage is your enemy isn't the person in front of you. There's these other forces fueling the system that they are trapped in. And the idea is that God is the ultimate liberator of the oppressed. And it is God's resources that you have in Jesus Christ that enable you to be a liberator in a way that no one else in humanity will have. And so what would it look like to lean into that call? Humans both oppressor and oppressed are not the real enemy. Now, that's hard, and it's easy for me to say because here I am, white dude, middle class, Seattle, nice house, whatever, Need some work, but nice enough house, you know, and, and, and like, like, of course, oh yeah, they're not your enemy, dude, because you've never had to fight them. Yeah, maybe, I, I can own some of that. I can definitely own some of that. But man, have I been trapped by their lies. And not only that, I mean, if I'm really honest, as a child, I felt some of that wrath. It sucked. An abusive live-in boyfriend with my mom on welfare, you know? It was awful. How do I get out of that? How do I get out of that, right? And yet, as we're going to talk about The intersections of my life gave me a much cleaner path to getting out of that situation than most people who don't have my um, resourcing and look and all of that have. But both the oppressed and the oppressor, when Jesus looks at them, he says, I see so much more than you ever have seen of yourself. We've been played. According to the gospel of Jesus, we have been played, no matter where we stand in that situation. Galatians, where we're gonna end, says this. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there any male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And this gets us to the heart of it. As Paul is planting these churches, he is in the heart of all kinds of isms that have been fueled by these authorities, these powers, these spiritual beings, however we understand that with them in the ancient world. And he, he steps into these communities and he says, look, here's someone who sees their privilege and and wants to kinda of demystify their experience a little bit and follow Jesus and then wanna kinda of just say, wait a second, this isn't right. This isn't and they're gonna host slaves as though they're sisters and brothers. And they're gonna host men or women as though they're one. And and one of the wrong ways this passage could be translated or or interpreted rather is to say, therefore your distinct reality isn't important to Jesus. No, it is so important that it has to be named as the very thing that isn't a barrier to unity, but is a very real reality. Jesus wants us to own that I am male, own that you're female, own your your lot in life because that is what is real, that is what is true in the situation. But what brings the gospel into those situations is when someone who is this way and someone who is completely different can sit at the table, eat some food, and tell stories and be raw and honest and advocate for one another. Especially those with the privilege learning. Learning their place as equals. As equals. That's really hard. It's still hard. Still don't quite get it, but I want to. Later in Galatians, the next chapter. This is what Paul will say. He's talking to these Gentiles, right? So so this letter is written to Gentiles and, and they have become very confused. Do we become Jewish? therefore get circumcised, right? You remember this storyline, right? If, if I'm a non-Jewish person, I want to become Jewish in the first century, and I'm a man. Again, there's layers of patriarchy there. I'm not dealing with that right now because that's too hard. Um, but but the, the way you do that is you go through this circumcision, right? And, and enter into sort of synagogue covenant, and you are now Jewish. You are no longer Greek. You are no longer anything else. And there are provisions and protections in the Roman Empire that say, you can be Jewish as long as you're nice, That's it. They were the one monotheistic religion, and I use those categories loosely, but they were the one group like that in the ancient world that had permission to be so. They didn't have to do any of the Caesar stuff, nothing. So you have these Jesus followers who are like, we're kind of like them, but we're not quite. And they're like, what do we do with this? And Paul steps in and says, okay, if you get circumcised, like you get what you're doing, there's this one line, he goes, look at when you get circumcised as a Gentile and you're trying to follow Jesus, you, you are, you're you're wacko. Like it doesn't make sense because now you're obligated to follow like all of the Torah. Why would you want that? You know? Paul's like really practical, like, like you don't need to do that. Like Jesus died, so you didn't have to do that. And he's spe- again, he's speaking to Gentiles. He's not even telling Jewish people what to do. He's talking to these Gentiles. And then, and then on the other hand, they're like, well, okay, we won't do that. So maybe we'll just like pretend we're into this other stuff. And Paul's like, that's, that's slavery. You're gonna worship, um, you're gonna pretend maybe even to worship Caesar or you're gonna bring all those things in. You're bringing in all of the baggage of that reality. If you're gonna be one in Jesus, you can't be diluted into other things because that's where oppression comes. That's where bondage is. And so here's what he says. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that are by nature not God. So these angelic dudes that think they're all a big deal. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? These angels. How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid your work, my work for you may have been wasted. And what's really important is, is Paul's like, don't turn back, but it's really fascinating Because they can't have it both ways, which means doing the hard work of saying the system around us doesn't get to define us anymore because we're defined by an empty tomb. We're defined by Jesus. We're defined by this radical oneness that Rome never wanted us to have. Rome wants us to melt into something that looks like Rome. And in Jesus, we are this and we're this and we're together. Why would you? Why would you go back to that system? And here we go. You get to follow Jesus. It's going to be much harder. You're suffering. The end of the letter actually ends. And and, um, I know you're trying to avoid circumcision. I know some of you want to get circumcised. He says at the end, he goes, because you want to avoid persecution. Right? Right? I mean, Paul's just like, you don't have to do that. And, and then he'll close and say, but rather, we're part of a new creation. We're part of a new kind of world. That stuff, we have to let it be that stuff. Let's be the new creation reality that is being born here and now. I've show, I showed this calendar earlier this year, so I don't wanna spend too much time on it. But if you're wondering about the seasons, days, months, and years, some people have thought this is about like Judaism. It's really, I don't think anything about Judaism. It is all about the, the kind of things, they used to not know God because they were doing this, and now they know God, so don't do this, right? And what is this? Well, this is just an example of the imperial worship of the emperors and their gods. And this is just the flow of the year. Hey, here's all the liturgical holidays as a Roman person that you need to celebrate. Fourth of July is not up there. Sorry, I'm just kidding. Getting a little close, I know. Some of you still like your red, white, and blue. It's all good. Okay, and, and, and so, so what we're saying here, though, what Paul, I think, is saying is this, and then we're gonna get a little practical for a few minutes. Humans, both oppressor and oppressed, can be liberated from the powers, these dark forces that enslave us, and the systems that they seek to empower. We can experience this liberation together. We can see the ways in which our sisters and brothers are dehumanized and say, we will not stand for that. And we can say to our sisters and brothers, see me, see me. Because the gospel renders to us an experience of the divine image in each of us together. That God just wants to see unleashed. As Paul says in, some, in another passage, God wants you to be in that image from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory to the next degree of glory because that is what it is when you live together. And so when we humanize the other as distinct from enslaving systems, this, my friends, is spiritual warfare. If you've ever wondered what spiritual warfare is about, it's at least about this this morning. Speaking into the darkness Some of you will do this through prayer. Some of you will do this through action. Some of you will do this through mixes of the two. But if you've ever sat with spiritual warfare, it is not just because you had a tempting thought and you need to resist it, although you do need to resist it and you do need to seek Jesus in that moment. But that is just a a slice of the big thing that God wants to do in the world as we call out evil God doesn't want you to do an individual transgression, but God does not want transgressions to become a system that hurt people either. And so, what does it look like to follow Jesus amidst the patriarchy and maybe we would say some of these other isms? And, and these are things that um, are not just for me. I'm, I'm actually gathering up the pieces from what has been said, what I've learned in this series. The staff has really helped me in this. Um, our conversations have helped me in this. So, so I'm hoping I do a good job of reflecting back to you all some of the things that have already been said. And I'm simply trying to say them through the grid of what um, we've looked at this morning. And one of these is that we learn from the intersections of each person's story. In everyday life. It was so helpful and beautiful to have a panel of women, for instance, up here share some things that that my instinct, I, I've shared this with some of you. It's like I I it's laughable because I can't believe it's true. You know? But I wouldn't see it unless I heard it. And, and this is the sort of thing that I'm learning in my own journey that the unique intersections and, and beyond just like man, woman, there are women who also are a, a different um, race than us, right, than, than me. And, and, and there's, there's all of these layers, there's so many layers to the human person, and, and we do a great injustice when we ignore the layered reality of the human person. And I have intersections, too. I have my own unique intersections. Some of them come from my own story. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Mennonite boy. I, I grew up in a weird way. I got my own stuff. But no one knows that unless I tell them, you know what I mean? Just like, oh yeah, he's had, he's had it easy his whole life. He's white and he's a dude. I, that, that's not my whole story, but here's the truth of it. My intersections, it's almost like they had very nice traffic cops guiding me through when I had a hard time, and those traffic cops aren't there for some people in this world, and that's really important that we know, and I don't know why I'm thinking of traffic cops, except I happened to be in the U last night, and congratulations, but man, traffic was awful. A <laughs> few more thoughts as we close. As we look at Jesus, we see him defeat cosmic powers like we've talked about today and love the victims of their tyranny. Jesus is both. We're invited to do both. Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, as as it says in Colossians, um, defeats and makes a mockery of the powers and principalities who stand behind the kings and the power and authority of this world. And yet Jesus sits with those who are in pain I think the the men who were caught with stones in their hand and John's gospel is a great example. Jesus says, don't throw those stones. No. Jesus sees people, hears their stories. But he also fights the powers that are at work to play us. And so we're invited, I think, to partner with Jesus in naming the isms and to embody freedom as the body. I, I said this a little bit like this, that we can embody as the body just to, I don't know, it's not that cool, but um, they said it sounded too much like a preacher. And, uh, but that's the joy. I mean, it's what Trey said at the end of his video, right? There's so much freedom in leaning into the intersections of the stories of others. We can live together as sisters and brothers where there is no male or female, slave or free, when it comes to status and privilege, but that we can sit at the same table and proclaim that our status and privilege are defined by the God of the universe who forsake all of that to liberate both friends and enemies from the powers of darkness. So we close. And I'm gonna close with a thought about Mary and Martha that has come up a little bit these last few weeks. Mary and Martha give me a tangible picture. They give me a picture and, and, and maybe it works for some of you and maybe it doesn't, but if you know the story in Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha, they're at home, Jesus comes to visit and Martha is doing the right thing by the cultural standards of the time. She's organizing the house. She's getting things done. She's making sure her fancy guest named Jesus is taken care of. And her sister Mary sits at Jesus' feet to learn, to listen, to grow, to be a disciple. And I was reading and I was like, okay, the way I understand this story is that that Mary is doing the better thing, as Jesus will say, because she is doing the thing that is discipling. And in that moment, Jesus is calling out something about her as a human, not just as a category of existence, but it sounded too good to be true, so I consulted a commentary, and it was so good. Um, and it was Tommy Wright, uh, also called N.T. Wright. He's very formal. And, 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 and he, he calls the same thing out. It's so cool. He said, the problem is that Mary in this moment, by their cultural standpoint, is behaving as though she's a man. And Jesus says, that is good. Not becoming a man, but owning your own discipleship in that moment. Jesus sees her. May we be people who see her. May we be people who see the him who's under the him. May we see people at all their intersections. May we see people with all their complexity. May we resist the powers that want to play us against one another, that want to play us into this culture of division and hatred and violence and all of the things And notice where the subtleties of patriarchy creep into our stories, creep into our lives, and to call them out as demonic so that human beings together, unique intersections and all, can proclaim to the world that something new has arrived in Messiah Jesus.